Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 12. Christianity and the Rule of Law. Quote, the laws of national duty to God, now unfolded, are no abstract theory. They are one main part of that law of eternal right, which is the foundation of the throne of God. Statesmen may transgress them, but cannot change them. Our own country, though a thousand years from Alfred until now, has been raised to greatness as a Christian state, rendering public homage, however mingled and imperfect, to the risen Son of God. Faith in Christianity and open honour to all the ordinances of the Christian Church has formed the groundwork of the British Constitution. End quote. For over a millennium, the English legal system has been informed by Christian principles of justice. Christianity has exerted a dominating influence on our legal heritage. The standards and ideals that guided the development of our law from ancient times are derived from the Bible. A great many of our legal and constitutional practices are derived either directly from the Bible, for example the coronation oath, or from pre-Christian practices that have been so completely transformed under the influence of Christian concepts of justice that the original pre-Christian practices from which they are derived are no longer discernible in the Christianized forms in which we know them today. For example, oath swearing in court. This process began with the arrival of Augustine of Canterbury in 597 and continued through to the 12th century. Both in Anglo-Saxon and Norman England, the increasing influence of Christianity upon the development of our system of justice can be documented. For example, the laws of Alfred, the earliest manuscript dates from around 925. The first 48 clauses are taken from the Decalogue and the Book of the Covenant, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and chapter 21, verse 1 to chapter 23, verse 13, though stated in a slightly modified form to take account of contemporary Anglo-Saxon society, and followed by an exposition of the Christian use of God's law and the importance of the Golden Rule, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This influence of the Bible and the law codes of the English kings continued and can be found in the law codes of Edward the Elder, Ethelstan, Ethelred, Knut et al. These law codes in turn provided the basis for the compilations of English law found in a number of Norman law books. It was under the influence of the clerical judges of the 12th and 13th centuries that these laws and customs were transformed into the common law system. Thus, quote, Common law was the product of a union between universal Christian laws and local customs. End quote. The concepts of due process and the rule of law, the notion that guilt is individual, not corporate, that a man is innocent until proven guilty, and habeas corpus are all derived from a Christian understanding of justice. 
our legal system presupposes a Christian worldview. The pervasive influence of Christianity on the development of Western legal systems has led Harold Berman to speak of Western legal science as a, quote, secular theology, unquote, that often does not make sense to non-Christians because its theological presuppositions are not accepted. It is the presuppositions of the Christian worldview that give coherence and meaning to our understanding and practice of justice, and our legal system cannot properly be understood apart from those Christian presuppositions upon which it is based. Our common law was shaped under the dominating influence of the Christian religion. Thus, a basic principle of the common law was that, quote, any law is, or of right ought to be, according to the law of God, end quote. This statement is recorded in the yearbook of Henry VII's reign. Likewise, inequity. The purpose of equity was to provide a remedy at law where the strict application of the common law could not provide one, or where it could not provide a satisfactory remedy. It was stated that equity applied, quote, quote, where the law is directly in itself against the law of God or the law of reason, end quote. Equity was administered in the Court of Chancery, and the Chancellor, as the keeper of the King's conscience, provided remedies according to equity and conscience. Accordingly, in 1489, the Chancellor, Cardinal Morton, stated that, quote, Every law should be in accordance with the law of God, and I know well that an executor, who fraudulently misapplies the goods and does not make restitution, will be damned in hell, and to remedy this is in accordance with conscience, as I understand it, end quote. The basic principle that guided the Court of Chancery was that all law must conform to reason and the law of God. Indeed, to the medieval clerical judges under whose influence our legal institutions and traditions first took shape, there was no real distinction between the law of reason and the law of God. Reasonable law was law that conformed to God's law. Thus, Christopher Saint-Germain, in his Doctor and Student, a legal treatise published in 1523 in Latin and 1531 in English, stated that, quote, when the law eternal or the will of God is known to his creatures by the light of natural reason, that is called the law of reason, and when it is showed of heavenly revelation, then it is called the law of God. And when it is showed unto him by order of a prince, or of any other secondary governor that hath power to set a law upon his subjects, then it is called the law of man, though originally it be made of God. Unquote. Furthermore, we are told in the same treatise that, quote, if any law made of men bind any person to anything that is against the said laws, the law of reason or the law of God, it is no law but corruption and manifest error. End quote. Hence, Traditionally, our legal system and values of justice have reflected biblical law and Christian conceptions of justice. Reasonable law was law that conformed to the law of God. This influence of the Christian religion on the evolution of our legal system has given us what we have traditionally called, quote, the rule of law, end quote. But it is important that we understand what this Christian doctrine of the rule of law means and how it has traditionally been understood. Chief Justice Sir Edward Cook told King James I, when the latter unconstitutionally attempted to assume the power of an absolute monarch, that, quote, The king is under no man, save under God, 
and the law, end quote. He was quoting Henri de Bracton, died 1268, the, quote, father of English jurisprudence, end quote, who had stated the dictum, lex facet regem, quote, the law makes the king, end quote, quote, the king himself ought not to be subject to man, but subject to God, and to the law, because the law makes him king, end quote. And, as we have seen, English common law maintained that the law of the land was subject to the higher moral law of God. This concept of the rule of law, therefore, does not, at least as it has traditionally been understood and enshrined in English law, mean that rulers may do anything they please, provided they merely pass a law legitimising it first. On the contrary, what the doctrine of the rule of law maintained was that the king, or the government, or legislators, may not make any law that contradicts the higher moral law of God. The principle is still enshrined in our constitution, though rather unconstitutionally our modern legislators have ignored it and presided over the utter debasement of our constitutional inheritance. Since, in the coronation oath, the monarch swears to, quote, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant reformed religion established by law, end quote. Those who make our legislation are bound absolutely, according to the doctrine of the rule of law, by the higher moral law of God. The rule of law, therefore, meant the rule of Christian law. And this Christian law was defined in terms of the higher law of God found in the Christian scriptures. Justice, as we understand it in the West, is not something that simply hangs in the air and can be recognised by all, no matter what their religion or philosophy of life. It is not a set of abstract principles to which all rational men in all ages and societies adhere. Nor is it deduced according to principles of logic and rationally by philosophers or lawyers. In a world of sin, justice is not natural. It is not something to which sinners naturally aspire. Justice is the fruit of a Christian worldview and a Christian culture. It has taken centuries for our justice system to evolve. Western justice is only reasonable to Westerners because they have imbibed it as part of a Christian civilization. Western justice is not reasonable in cultures that are based on fundamentally different religious beliefs and presuppositions. It is no accident that the highest form of justice known in history, quote, British justice, unquote, that is, the system of English common law justice that existed throughout the British Empire and North America, coexisted with the highest form of Christian civilization known in history. This system of justice was the product of a Christian civilization. People in Britain, by and large, do not recognize Muslim law as the kind of law they wish to see enacted in this country. Muslim, quote, justice, unquote, is perceived here as Islamic fundamentalism and associated with terrorism. The fatwa condemning the author Salman Rushdie to death is a good example. The, the jihad is an important part of the Muslim faith. The essence of jihad is summed up in the words of the Muslim prophet, which are recorded in a number of different hadiths. Quote, I am commanded to fight against men until they bear witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is God's messenger. Only by pronouncing these words can they make their property and blood secure from me. 
End quote. People with a British cultural heritage will find this statement abhorrent, as they will the practical application of it, as in the case of the Rushdie fatwa, for example. It is not so negatively perceived by Muslims, however. However, this difference in perception of the character of justice is a consequence of the fact that Muslim culture is based on a different religious faith, a faith that is inimical to the Christian values and ideals that are taken for granted in the West. Many fail to realise that our own justice system has been superior to the barbarous regimes of the Muslims because it is the fruit of a Christian way of life, a Christian belief system whose principles and ideals of justice are founded on the law of God. That foundation provided continuity for our nation for over a thousand years, because the God of the Bible is a law-giving God who is the same yesterday, today and forever, and thus whose law can be relied upon by man as a permanent standard of justice. The Bible, therefore, gave stability and predictability to our legal system and to our society. It gave the nation a system of justice that was reliable and sane. The abandonment of the Bible in our age is, by contrast, giving us a justice system that is not stable nor reliable, and that is increasingly manifesting the kind of insanity that it has begun to characterise our apostate culture generally. Principles of justice that have been established and built upon for generations are being cast aside by our legislators every time Parliament sits. And the passing of new legislation by Parliament that is based upon presuppositions fundamentally alien to the religious ethic upon which our legal traditions are based seems never to cease. This mania for new and often totally unnecessary laws is changing the character of our law and of our legal system. Common law is being superseded by statute law passed by short-sighted politicians with their eyes not on justice, but rather on the next election. Legality is what matters today, not justice. And what is legal can be changed by a few politicians more concerned to maintain their power at all costs than to see the country governed properly according to Christian principles of justice. Our politicians no longer believe in a higher law to which all human law should conform. As a result, legislation is today becoming the mere tool of our political masters, who will use it to sanction whatever means are necessary for them to take control of our lives and society, and mould them to the pattern they judge to be appropriate. Thus, increasingly, our law no longer guarantees a man's freedom under God's law. Rather, it is the tool that, in the hands of our state politicians, will enslave us and bring us into subjection to the all-powerful, predestinating state. I want to look now at a few areas where, the, where this traditional understanding of the rule of law have been overturned and where, as a consequence, our common law heritage has been abandoned. 1. First, socialism. Our common law system of justice has suffered significantly from the creation of a socialistic welfare state, since in order to implement the welfare state, legislation has been passed that is based on philosophical principles that are fundamentally alien to the Christian religion, which guided the formation of our legal traditions. For example, judicial independence, one of the pillars of our common law heritage, 
has been substantially weakened by the kind of legislation necessary to implement the welfare state. ECS Wade, in his introduction to the 1939 edition of A.V. Dicey's Law of the Constitution, stated the problem clearly, quote, It is still accepted constitutional doctrine that the ministers of the Crown do not tamper with the administration of justice, but Parliament, indirectly, has reduced the sphere of influence of judicial independence by the character of modern legislation. The abandonment of the principle of laissez-faire has altered the nature of much of our law, a system of law, which, like the common law, is based on the protection of individual rights, is not readily comparable with legislation that has for its object the welfare of the public or a large section of it as a whole. The common law rests upon an individualistic conception of society and lacks the means of enforcing public rights. As such, the socialisation of the activities of the people has meant restriction of individual rights by the conferment of powers of a novel character upon governmental organs. End quote. This was written over 60 years ago. The situation has become much worse since these words were written. Our society is being transferred legislation passed in Parliament from a society ruled by law to a society ruled by politicians, that is, a totalitarian society. A good example of this development was the Leasehold Reform, Housing and Urban Development Act, passed in 1993. Interestingly, this piece of socialist legislation was passed by a Conservative government, the major government, during its, quote, back to basics, unquote, and the revival of, quote, traditional values, unquote, phase. The traditional value to be sacrificed by Mr Major's Conservative government on this occasion was the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. The Leasehold Reform, Housing and Urban Development Act. Under this rather innocuous verbiage, an act was passed that legalised theft, private property. Surely one would have thought that this particular traditional value would have been on even Mr Major's truncated list has now been abolished by the Conservative Party. This act makes it possible for leaseholders to claim the, quote, right, unquote, to purchase the freehold to their dwellings against the wishes of the freeholder. This means that the freeholder is obliged by law to surrender his property, the freehold, if a leaseholder, effectively a tenant, wishes to acquire it. This is a law, therefore, that not only does not protect the freeholder from theft, but actually abets the thief in his criminal design. I say criminal, since this legislation contradicts our traditional Christian understanding of justice and has only been made legal by government decree. It is a lawless piece of legislation, contrary to the principles of justice that have underpinned our legal tradition for many centuries. Of course, it will not be too long before all private tenants will be able to demand the dubious right to purchase the dwellings in which they live from the rightful owners of the property. There are, of course, many more examples of the effects of socialist legislation on our system of justice. I have picked this one out because it shows how far even conservative governments have fallen prey to the socialist ethos of our day. 2. Second, I want to look at the burden of proof. 
particularly as it relates to corroborating evidence. There seems to be some indication that this will prove to be a greater problem the closer we get to European assimilation. It is important to note, however, that a movement away from this essential element of justice is already underway and has been for a long time. Christianity teaches that, quote, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15. See also Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 and Numbers chapter 35 verse 30. This principle is reaffirmed in the New Testament no less than five times. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 and 16. John chapter 8 verse 17. 2 Corinthians 13 1. 1 Timothy 5 19. Hebrews 10 28. The requirements of multiple witnesses is necessary to protect the accused from the malice of false witnesses. What this means is that there must be sufficient evidence to put the conviction of an accused person beyond reasonable doubt. This principle is the source of the concept that a man is innocent until proven guilty. If there is insufficient evidence, the court should not convict. This is a simple principle, but it is vitally important. One would have thought it hardly needed to be reaffirmed, but unfortunately it does, because it is a principle that is now under attack. Under a Conservative government, majors again, a Criminal Justice and Public Order Act was passed in 1994 that overturned this principle. Much publicised at the time, as the bill passed through Parliament, was the clause that was popularly represented as abolishing the right to silence, though, in fact, what was abolished was the principle that the court should not be entitled to infer anything from a defendant's silence. This change in the law was, rightly in my judgment, abominated by many, since it strikes at the heart of the principle that the burden of proof should fall on the prosecution. The passing of this legislation removed one of the building blocks of the concept that a man is innocent until proven guilty. There is a shift of emphasis towards the defendant's having to prove his innocence. This is the thin end of the wedge. Little by little, such legislation will lead to a full-blown doctrine of guilty until proven innocent. However, this was not the only breach of justice contained in the Act. There were other problems in it that received far less attention in the media. The, quote, explanatory and financial memorandum, end quote, published at the time of the bill, stated that the bill, quote, abolishes the current common law requirement for judges to warn juries of the danger of convicting on the uncorroborated evidence of a complainant in a sexual offence case or of an accomplice and the corresponding requirement in summary trials, end quote. The law, as it stood before the passing of this act, required judges to warn juries of the danger of convicting a man in certain sexual offence cases on the sole evidence of the alleged victim or on the sole evidence of an accomplice. Convictions based on such evidence are not sound. It is unreasonable and against God's law and it is unreasonable because it is against God's law to take the word of an, to take the word of an accomplice in a crime or the word of the victim of an alleged sexual offence as truth without independent corroboration. The fact that a man could be so convicted 
on uncorroborated evidence, provided the jury was warned of the danger involved in such a conviction, was bad enough. But to abolish the judge's statutory duty to warn the jury of the danger of such a conviction was to follow a bad law with a worse law. Under the law, as it then stood, however, corroboration of the evidence of a sole witness was required by statute for certain offences. Among these were certain offences covered by the Sexual Offences Act 1956. The Criminal Justice and Public Order Act abolished in certain cases this statutory requirement that the evidence of a sole witness be, quote, corroborated in some material particular by evidence implicating the accused, end quote. These were a. Procurement of a woman by threats b. Procurement of a woman by false pretenses c. Administering drugs to obtain or facilitate intercourse d. Causing prostitution of women and e. Procurement of a girl under age It is now possible for a jury to convict a man of an offence under this section solely on the evidence of a single witness, that is, by the testimony of the alleged victim alone. It seems incredible that a conservative government should have passed such legislation. Such an action is against reason and against the higher law of God. Sexual liaisons are a notorious area for injustices caused by sexual jealousies and the malice of jilted lovers who turn on their former partners with lies. The abolition of the requirement of corroboration in cases involving sexual offences, besides being the declaration of an open season on sexist men by deranged feminists, was a perversion of justice by the party that claims, above all, to be the, quote, party of law and order, end quote. It was an attack on justice and on the Christian principles that, quote, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed, end quote. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 The principle that a man is innocent until proven guilty necessitates that the burden of proof should fall on the prosecution. The abandonment of the requirement of corroborating evidence is a stage on the road to the total overthrow of this important principle and the establishment of the principle that the accused is guilty until proven innocent. 3. The third area that I want to look at is Multiculturalism. Our society is often proclaimed a multicultural society today. Multiculturalism is an ideal that we are constantly being encouraged to embrace. But what does multiculturalism mean? Some think it means a multiracial society. I do not agree. What multiculturalism means in essence is a multi-religious society. It is not always perhaps not often, appreciated that all law ultimately is based on religious convictions. Consequently, there can be no such thing as a non-religious state. All states are religious states. This is evident if we consider the simple question, what is the purpose of the state? How we answer this question will reveal our fundamental religious convictions. Why? Because this question brings us inevitably to basic questions of right and wrong. And such questions are always religious questions. That is to say, the answers to such questions are always informed by one's religious convictions. Even the denial of God's existence expresses a basic religious conviction, a religious worldview, 
namely the idea that the world is entirely explicable in terms of itself, material processes, and has no meaning beyond these processes, which means, in effect, that mankind provides his own meaning for the existence of life, that, quote, the world, unquote, to use Schopenhauer's words, is, quote, is my idea, end quote. The world is understood, therefore, not in terms of the creative purpose of God, but in terms of chemical evolution or whatever intellectual idol men may choose to govern their lives by. This will have significant implication for one's concept of morality generally, and thus inevitably for political ethics as well. The kind of morality produced by such a perspective, and therefore the conceptions of right and wrong in terms of which the state must act, will be different from that produced by a Christian understanding of the meaning and purpose of life. Such a perspective is just as religious as the Christian perspective. The denial of God's existence is a universal negative religious presupposition that shapes the worldview of those who embrace it. What we believe about these issues will inevitably affect our view of the function of the state. The Christian faith teaches that chemical processes, etc., do not provide valid answers to questions about the meaning of life, and that, if man is to have correct answers to questions of right and wrong, justice, his thinking on this subject must conform to the moral law of God set forth in the Christian scriptures. Quote, Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. End quote. Words spoken to Queen Elizabeth II at her coronation in 1953. And while being presented with the Bible, she was admonished with the following words, quote, Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords, end quote. It is the acceptance of this truth that has made Western justice so much superior to the forms of justice found in the unchristianized cultures. The Western notion of justice was not plucked out of thin air by right-thinking men. It was the product of a Christian civilization. All that made Western justice superior to the barbarous regimes that are to be found among societies that have not come under the influence of Christian civilization was the result of the fact that Western justice was Christian justice. Common law was, to use the words of Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, quote, the diary of Christian baptism, end quote. It is naive to assume that Muslims, Hindus and secular humanists will pluck the same notions of justice from thin air that modern Westerners think are the inevitable consequence of the application of pure reason. They will not. And this is because these notions of justice are not the inevitable consequence of reason, at least not in a fallen world. Rather, they are the consequence of the captivity of human reason to the word of God, the result of centuries of Christian culture and civilization. The issue of justice is a religious issue. Hence the magistrate, who is a man created in God's image, and who, therefore, cannot escape the religious nature of his being, must inevitably have recourse to his religious convictions as he seeks to understand and discharge the task to which he has been called, 
he may be quite unconscious of the way in which his religious convictions affect the work he does. That they will affect his work is inevitable. As I have already mentioned, the Christian concept of government in our nation was the rule of law, which meant that all law must conform to the higher law of God, and this includes legislation passed by Parliament and precedent established in courts. In fact, the courts of equity existed precisely to redress any discrepancy between the common law and God's law, which, of course, was identified with reason. The two were considered to be the same thing. What we have now is the rule of politicians, that is, Parliament no longer deems itself accountable to the higher law of God. It can change any law it does not like and replace it with a new one. Even if the latter totally overturns a fundamental principle of justice. This is what happened with the 1993 Leasehold Reform Act and the 1994 Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. These acts overturned fundamental principles of our legal system. In the same way, legislation has been passed that legalises the murder of unborn infants. At one time, the word abortion was usually understood to mean a miscarriage. Unlawful killing of an unborn infant, though it was abortion, was considered a crime. Now Parliament has legalised the deliberate killing of an unborn infant through the enactment of permissive legislation. In conclusion, it needs to be recognised that our legal system has been evolving for over a millennium. It is by no means perfect and never has been. It is important that this process of development should continue in order that the law might meet the needs of modern life. But the law needs to evolve in terms of the religious presuppositions upon which it was originally based. The problem we face today is not that the law is evolving per se, that must happen if the law is to be relevant, but rather that it is evolving in terms of presuppositions that are alien to our legal and cultural heritage, on which the law itself was originally based. This will lead eventually to the overthrow of our traditional understanding of what justice is, that is, a Christian concept of justice. British justice and Muslim justice are not the same by any means. A humanistic conception of justice is different again. But this is what is now being foisted upon us by our politicians. The values that we are losing are the Christian values that guided the development of our understanding of justice itself and, hence, the development of our legal system and, indeed, the development of our civilization generally. This is all part of the process of transition from a Christian society to a neo-pagan society. The dominant philosophy today is secular humanism. Originally, this retained many features of a Christian worldview, but slowly it has changed and is now more consistently and self-consciously pagan. All kinds of religions and philosophies are on sale in the marketplace of ideas today. This gets called the multicultural society, but religion is determinative of culture. Culture is largely the visible expression of religion, though it may not be self-consciously so. Our culture for a long time was Christian. It was the visible expression of the dominant religious faith. Christianity 
is now in drastic decline and other faiths and religions and secular humanism is a religion are offering themselves. The multicultural society is not a permanent thing. It is a society going through a transitional period in which the various religions on offer struggle for supremacy. At the moment, secular humanism is dominant. And it is secular humanism that is the source of the attack upon Christian law in our society. Like the humanism of ancient Rome, it will tolerate any religion just so long as that religion does not challenge its political supremacy. But secular humanism has unleashed a terrible monster upon society in the form of multiculturalism, which it cannot control. And secular humanism may not be the final victor. Whatever religion ultimately triumphs in this struggle will be determinative of culture, the culture of the British nation, if there still is a Britain that is, and with the European Union we cannot guarantee that, will eventually change. It will be an expression of the new religious consensus. The dominant religion will proceed to stamp its ideas upon society and determine the culture, and inevitably along with this it will stamp its own laws upon society, since law is inescapably based on the religious presuppositions that govern our understanding of life, and thus our understanding of justice also. If Christianity wins, we shall go on to a new period of Christian civilization. If secular humanism retains its hold, our law will continue to become thoroughly pagan, pragmatic and subservient to politicians. This will be a modern version of ancient Rome, a highly tolerant society. The state will be as God, whether it is of the right-wing or of the left-wing variety, determining good and evil for itself, according to its own ideas and goals, without reference to the higher moral law of God. The individual will be nothing, except in relation to the state. The state will provide meaning and purpose for the individual, and the society of which he is, in this philosophy, an insignificant part. And the individual and society will exist to serve the state. The philosophy underpinning this kind of society has already got a very strong hold on our culture. We stand at the edge of a precipice. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.